So notice Acts chapter 10, verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What is the most important word in the Bible? Perhaps several words come to your mind, like love or faith. But there's another word that I think might just be as equally important, and that is forgiveness. Forgiveness. And so tonight, I want to talk about forgiveness. In this verse that we read from the book of Acts, Peter told Cornelius and his family that for those who believe in Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. But that, of course, means there is no forgiveness for those who don't believe. Jesus told the Jewish rulers in John chapter 8 and verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, meaning I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And that means you will die unforgiven. Now the word forgiveness in the Bible actually has several different meanings or maybe like shades of meaning. They're all similar but slightly different. And they come from different Greek words. So in other words, you might read one verse that says forgive, and it might be translated from one particular Greek word. Another verse might be using a different Greek word. It has a slightly different meaning. So it would be helpful to take a moment here this evening and look in at some of the definitions of forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus said in what we sometimes term the Lord's Prayer, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, the Greek word translated forgive in this verse is, and I'll endeavor to pronounce this, afiami, afiami. And it means to send away or to cancel, to send away or to cancel. So one definition of forgiveness is to cancel a debt. To cancel a debt. So if someone borrows money from you, he takes something from you, something that you had, and now he owes you. And if someone does wrong to you, that person is indebted to you. So Jesus said we should cancel others' debts just as God has canceled our debts. In other words, if you want to be forgiven, you must be forgiving. Let me say that again. If you want to be forgiven, you must be forgiving. You must forgive others. And here's something else, very important. It is certainly possible for a man to sin against another man. But ultimately, in the final analysis, 
Every sin is a sin against God. That, that's a heavy thought, and it's true. Ultimately, every sin, not just some sins, every sin is a sin against God. After David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed, he wrote in Psalm 51 and verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. And he's referring to the Lord when he says you, because verse 1 says, have mercy on me, O God. Now, you would think that David would have said something like this, against Bathsheba and her husband only have I sinned. But he didn't say that, because every sin is a sin against God. Amen. Let's look at some more verses. In Genesis chapter 20, verse 6, God spoke to a man named Abimelech in a dream. Abimelech was the king of the Philistines, and he spoke to him because of an incident regarding Sarah. You know, Sarah was Abraham's wife. Abimelech thought she was unmarried, and so he took her into his household as, as if she, to be his wife. So God said to Abimelech in Genesis 20, verse 6, I kept you from sinning against me. I didn't allow you to touch her. I kept you from sinning against me. It's interesting. You would think that the Lord would say, I prevented you from sinning against Abraham. But he didn't say that, from sinning against me. When Potiphar, when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph, you know, if you were here last Sunday, we talked about that. When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph, he said to her, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's Genesis 39 and verse 9. Notice he said sin against God. Hmm. Then Samuel, the prophet, said to the people of Israel in 1 Samuel 12, 23, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Notice he said, sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. By the way, here's another thought. Sin is not just doing something that you should not do. That's what most people think of. When you think of sin, you think of he did something that was wrong. He did something he should not do. But sin is also failing to do something you should do. He said, if I don't pray for you, I'm sinning against the Lord. There's a lot more sin than we realize. <laughs> I said, there's a lot more sin going around than we realize. Some people say, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew. Yeah, but they also don't pray. <laughs> Amen. So every sin is a sin against God. Now, this tells me something about God. 
God is not like an umpire in a sporting match, making sure everyone follows the rules. Like in a football match, just, you know, giving out red cards, you know, blowing the whistle, free kick here. That's not really who God is. Because when we sin, we directly hurt and offend him. God is not merely an observer of our lives, just watching. Oh, somebody did wrong here. Oh, somebody did something wrong there. God is personally affected by the way we live. It's interesting, the Bible refers to the, God's judgment for sin as wrath. That's the word the Bible uses over and over again. We see it in the book of Romans, for example. You know, W-R-A-T-H, wrath. The word wrath means anger, intense irritation. See, an umpire in a football match, he doesn't have any feelings about it. If someone commits a foul, he just says, yellow card, okay, sorry, you know, you, you, you get a free kick or something like that. But when we sin, God is personally affected. We have sinned against him. You have wronged him personally. Now, some people in the world and, well, maybe some people in the church, they seem to think that their sin is none of God's business. In fact, they, obviously they think it's nobody else's business. As long as I'm not hurting you, it's none of your business. And they think their sin is none of God's business. But they're wrong. Sin is a debt that we owe God. So thinking that our sin is not God's concern would be like taking a loan from the bank and then telling the branch manager it's none of his business how much money you owe. Well, it is his business. He has every right to be involved in that. Are you listening to me? Amen. So it is God's business when we sin because we owe him. Against you and you alone have I sinned. So forgiveness is when God clears our debts. The slate is wiped clean. The ledger is erased. That's forgiveness. Now, when we owe someone, we have a tendency, it's almost always true, we have a tendency to avoid meeting that person. Have you ever borrowed money from someone? Huh? Or maybe you've loaned money to someone. And every time you see that person, you smile for a moment. And then when he turns, your, your smile fades away because you're thinking, oh, you've got my money? Oh, you don't have my money. You know, so that's, that's what you're thinking about. When you, when you borrow money, you, you, you have a tendency to avoid. That's why I never loan money. I don't loan money to church members because that's the best way to lose a church member. They'll never come back to church again because they're afraid to see me. I don't loan money to friends. I don't loan money to family. I, I, I'll give money, but I don't, I, there's a bank that loans money. I'm not a banker. Hallelujah. Real quiet in this church. Hallelujah. I have known, and this is maybe helpful, 
I have known people in Nagaland, in Dimapur, who borrowed large sums of money, maybe like tens of lakhs or more from like a society or something like that or some kind of organization. And when they could not pay back the loan, they went into hiding because they were being hounded by their creditors. I mean, I know people that, you know, they would have someone bolt the outside of the door of their house to make it look like the person's not there, but actually they're inside. They have to call their neighbor. Okay, I want to come outside now. Come unlock my front door, you know, like that. Make it look, they, they have to live, you know, in secrecy. You know, change their name, dye their hair, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> Get a nose job, wear sunglasses. You know, they, they don't want anybody to see them. They live in the shadows. Hallelujah. And people who are heavily in debt usually don't sleep too well at night. Now, some people do. But usually they don't sleep too well at night. Because what's on their mind? That looming debt just seems to it haunts them just seems to follow them wherever they go. And the Bible says this, Proverbs 22, verse 7 says, the, it's not in my notes, but it says this, the borrower is servant to the lender. You might want to consider carefully before you borrow more money. Some people just live to borrow. Some people owe everybody in town. It's real quiet now, isn't it? Praise the Lord. Is that you? I don't know. You might want to use some wisdom in that area because you're going to become a servant to everybody. Hallelujah. But imagine, imagine the relief a person feels if his debt is canceled. I mean, I have owed money, oh, different things, and then I paid it back. I don't owe anybody anything. And I paid it back. And I like that. I don't, I don't, like I have a credit card. I have two or three credit cards. I don't keep a balance on my cards. I pay it off. I pay it off. The church, you know, we pay off, you know, sometimes we buy things maybe on installments or something like, like big generator. But, you know, we pay that off and it's so nice when it's paid off. But even better is when the debt is canceled. That's even better. Hallelujah. When the debt is canceled, there's no more running. No longer living like a fugitive. That person can now have peace. He can sleep peacefully at night. Hallelujah. So when we were sinners, before we knew the Lord, we kept our distance from God. We avoided meeting God. We stayed as far away from him as possible. And felt, in fact, as sinners... We felt uncomfortable when someone even mentioned God. Have you noticed like you can be sitting on a bus, on a train, and you're sitting next to a stranger talking, you know, da-da-da-da-da, having a little conversation about the weather and so forth and so on, and then you mention Jesus, and suddenly (laughs) people get real nervous, don't they? Why? Because they know in their hearts that they are in debt. Are you listening to me? In their conscience, they know they are in debt. All of us here owed a debt we could not pay. But Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. Now, because we are forgiven, 
We can come boldly to the throne of grace. We, can, we have access into God's presence. We can walk with God. We don't run from God. We run to God. Hallelujah. Amen. So forgiveness means the debt is canceled. Let's look at another verse. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Ephesians 4, 32 says this. Be kind to one another. Well, we could stop there and preach three sermons. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the Greek word here for forgiving is the word, and I'll pronounce it as best I can, charizomai, charizomai, something like that. And it means, this word means actually to be gracious. It's translated forgiving, but it, it actually means to be gracious or to show a favor. So when you forgive, you are giving. When you forgive someone, you are giving mercy to him. Now, some people are very generous with their opinions. They'll give you more than you want. And they're also very stingy with mercy. You know, when you're silent like that, you look guilty. You better say something, amen, or praise. That's good preaching, brother. I believe that, hallelujah, amen. Or, or otherwise, just look at someone else and just kind of nod in a sanctimonious way. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. So God forgives us as an act of kindness or graciousness. You should know that God is not obligated to forgive anyone. He's not required to forgive anybody. You see, a man in a courtroom may demand justice, but he cannot demand mercy. I said a man in a courtroom, maybe, maybe a family member has been wronged or something like that. He can demand justice. I demand that the perpetrator be arrested. But if he's wronged someone else, he cannot demand mercy. You can ask for it, but you can't demand it. Hallelujah. Amen. So this verse tells us to be tender-hearted. And a tender-hearted person forgives. So that means unforgiveness is a symptom of a heart problem. You know, your physical heart, you know, if you were to be uh, examined by a doctor... And we have some wonderful doctors here. I don't know if they're ready to examine you tonight, but if, if you were to be examined by a doctor, one of the vital organs I'm sure they would check is your heart. No, they wouldn't say his complexion is nice. What's his pulse? Zero. He's dead. No, if your heart isn't working, you've got a problem, right? If, you got, if there's a problem in your heart, that will affect your whole body. There's, you know, like, you know, have high blood pressure you know, or, or, you know, all sorts of other symptoms. That indicates, hey, there's a problem here. It's people have even had strokes and have had heart attacks and they didn't even really know what was happening at the time. Someone had to examine, you're having a heart attack. If you have unforgiveness in your heart, I'm talking about your spirit now, that indicates you have a 
spiritual condition, hard-heartedness. Not hardening of the arteries, hardening of your spirit. And you can't have good physical health with a heart problem, and you definitely cannot have a successful Christian life with a hard heart, with a hard spirit. Come on now, it's too quiet for me, I tell you. Can somebody say amen? Amen. So to be tender-hearted would be sympathetic toward others and to show compassion. Amen. Amen. When, when, you're, when I first came to Nagaland, I was amazed in the summertime especially to see the Tilawala walking barefoot on the street. I don't know if they all do that, but I, I saw people walking barefoot. I mean, these, these are pulling a, a cart, you know, and no shoe, just their foot. And the ground is so hot, you know, even my shoe is like melting, you know, it's so hot sometimes. And this guy's walking barefoot. Why? His feet are callous. It's, it's years, years of doing this. You know, I just walk maybe on the bare floor and my feet kind of hurt a little bit. But uh, when, when, my, when I first got married to my wife, she had naga feet, you know. <laughs> you know, living in, you know, in the village and everything, you know, and walking around. And so I would sometimes tease her. We're just married and she, we would get in bed and I would say, honey, please take your shoes off in bed, you know. Because <laughs> her feet felt like harder than my shoe, you know, just... But now I've lived here almost 30 years. And, and, and the other day, a, a woman came to our house and did Jeppy's nails and stuff like that. And then, like, I had, a, like, a toenail that was kind of a little bit ingrown. And, and they said, well, we can, we can do you, your feet, too. And I said, well, they said, yeah, come on. So the lady did that, and then she started scraping the bottom of my feet. She had, like, sandpaper thing, and she was like, ooh. And, and I realized I, I had become Naga. <laughs> so when the man has these callous feet, he doesn't feel anything. He could probably step on a, a broken glass or something and wouldn't even, maybe not even feel it. If you have a hard heart, you have a hard heart, you don't even feel it. You don't even feel it. You could have unforgiveness in your heart. It, it doesn't particularly bother you. That's not good. When you have a tender heart, like tender feet, you step on something, ooh, that hurts me. When you have a tender heart, when the, you, know, you have unforgiveness, oh, it bothers me. I, I, can't, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't do this. So that, mean, that means just because you're kind of like looking placid on the outside, that doesn't mean everything's okay on the inside. It could mean you have a hard heart. There's a lot of hard-hearted people in the church world. Amen. A tender-hearted person knows this, that hurting people hurt others. Amen? A hard-hearted person would be indifferent and uncaring. Think about this. If a brother or sister, a fellow believer, wrongs you, does something wrong to you, did you ever consider that person's conscience is probably bothering them. Did you ever think about that? You know, he, he, he lied about you. She took something of yours. And all you can think about is, I've been wronged. And, but ever thought about, maybe, maybe that other person is struggling. wonder how they must feel. Their conscience must be bothering them. 
They must be laboring under this heavy weight of guilt. Maybe this would be a good time for me to be gracious. I'm going to give you something. What? Mercy. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. Now, God would not tell us to do something that he was unwilling to do. He's not a hypocrite. He doesn't tell you and me, you know, to walk in love, and he's unloving. He doesn't tell you and me to be honest, and he's dishonest, right? So he told us to be tender-hearted toward others. Therefore, that must be his attitude towards us. I said, that must be his... He wouldn't say to you and me, be kind and tender-hearted, but I'm hard-hearted and unkind. That's not true. He is tender-hearted toward you. That's nice. That is really nice. The very fact that God forgives sins tells us much about his nature. He's generous. He's kind. In fact, God wants people to be forgiven. See, many times we are reluctant to forgive others. Oh, I don't mean us here tonight. Those people who sit in the balcony on Sunday. Not, not you, of course, but we're reluctant to forgive others. We know we have to. We know we have to. We know it's right. But we make it as slow as possible. I'm going to forgive you, but I need some time. Aren't you glad that God doesn't say that to you? Or we say, I forgive, but I'll never forget. <laughs> now, then you haven't forgiven. You haven't forgiven. Some people say, oh, I've forgiven. And then they constantly rehearse it in their mind. They relive it. It's like, it's like, you know, watching a rerun of an old movie. Oh, you, you already know the ending. Why watch it again? You know, and this relive it. When they see that person, the movie starts playing. <laughs> and they say, I've forgiven. You lion dog, you. <laughs> you have not. God said to us, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Does God constantly remind you of all your past sins? Hey, don't you remember what you did in 1977? Don't you remember what you did in 1984? You remember what you did three weeks ago? Don't you remember? No. When he forgives, he wipes the slate clean, and we should forgive others even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. What we want to do is we want God to forgive us completely, unconditionally, and we'll forgive others partially, slowly, and with a lot of conditions and, and requirements. That's being hard-hearted. Somebody say amen. amen. Or say, oh, me. <laughs> Jesus told the Pharisees. I don't know, maybe there are some Pharisees here tonight. Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 9, 13. Go. I didn't tell you to go. Listen, he said, go. And learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
In other words, what he means is this. Forgiving other people impresses God more than participating in religious ceremonies. Forgiving other people is more important to God than participating in religious services. That, mean, that means a person could be faithful to attend church. That's good. You're here. He can tithe. Very good. Read the Bible. Excellent. Pray. Wonderful. Help other people. Great. But if he harbors unforgiveness in his heart, that outweighs all of his religious activity because I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I've given so much of my time this year to this church. I've given so much of my money, but she won't give any mercy. So that's canceled. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. One reason why we are reluctant to forgive others is we really don't realize how much we have been forgiven. Let me say that again. One reason why we're slow to forgive other people is we don't realize how much we have been forgiven. In other words, we greatly underestimate the debt we owed God. See, we feel like, oh, I know I've missed it a couple of times, but in your mind, you know, you owe God like, you know, 50 pi, maybe a couple of rupees. No, it's a whole lot more than that. Whole lot more than that. Notice with me in the Bible, Matthew chapter 18, and I'm going to read from verse 23 to 35. It's a, it's a lengthy passage, so you just have to listen as I read. I don't know if they can put this on the screen or not. But beginning in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 23, okay? It's a, it's a little bit of a lengthy passage here. Jesus said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, that means begging him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, that's being tenderhearted, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. 
So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. And he went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He threw him in debtor's prison. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master, that would be the king, all that had taken place. Verse 32, then his master summoned him, called him, ordered him to come and said to him, you wonderful servant, You are so wise and smart. No. He said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now here's the real kicker. This is the verse that will keep you up tonight. Verse 35. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. And notice these words, from your heart. Not just from your head. From your heart. Woo! <laughs> What's that smell? I, it smells like flesh is burning in here. Do you smell that? Yeah, mine too, right? So obviously, this is a parable about forgiveness. So the first servant owed the king, the Bible says, 10,000 talents. Now, you have to understand, he's not talking about a talent like the ability to sing or dance or something like that. A talent is a weight of silver equal today to about 34 kgs, 34 kilograms. So 10,000 talents would be 3.4 lakhs kilos of silver. That's a lot of silver. 3.4 lakhs kilos of silver. In Jesus' day, it would take the average laborer, the average worker, about 16 and a half years to earn one talent. That's one talent. So in today's money, and I checked this last night, in today's money, one talent of silver would be worth 24 lakhs rupees. One talent. But this man owed 10,000 talents. So that would be 2,465 crores. I don't know what the budget of the state of Nagaland is, but I mean, you know, that's a lot of money. That's like an entire state's budget, maybe more than that. 2,465 crore rupees. And in the story, the king forgave the entire debt instantly and without conditions. 
I mean, if the king had said, well, I, I feel sorry for you. Tell you what, I'll reduce the amount you owe me. Make it 5,000 talents. That would have been very nice. That would have been very magnanimous, but he didn't do that. He wiped it clean. You don't owe me anything. And he didn't make a deal or, or add any conditions. I'll forgive your debt, but you have to work for me for the next seven years. That would have still been a great deal, honestly, because it takes 16 years just to make one talent. But he didn't even do that. He right away said, you're free because he pitied the man. But the same fellow ran into someone else, a fellow servant who was owed, who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarius in Jesus's day in the first century, a denarius was a small silver coin. It was the daily wage for a common laborer. So the king forgave this man 2,465 crores, rupees. But he strangled another man who owed him a few thousand rupees. Notice the king didn't put him in a chokehold, but this guy grabbed him by the throat, you know, putting the pressure on him for a few thousand rupees. Now, here's so interesting. Jesus, in this parable, in this story, said his fellow servants saw what had happened. And the Bible says they were greatly distressed. What does that mean? They were grieved. They, they felt sorrow. They didn't feel right about it. They were deeply troubled by this. We should be grieved. I said we should be grieved when we see another Christian who has unforgiveness in his heart. We should be deeply troubled by that. In other words, it's not okay. You know, let, let's say it this way. If you left the church and, and uh, tonight you happen to see another member drinking whiskey, I think you would be bothered by that, wouldn't you? I would be, right? If, if, you, if you left the service and you went around to the bathroom and in, in the ladies' room you found the praise and worship team smoking marijuana, <laughs> I think you would be greatly distressed by that. You would say, ha-ha, it's not the anointing. It's something else going on here. But if we see others who have bitterness and harbor unforgiveness toward others, we're just like, oh, no. But you know, that's actually worse. I'm not advocating drinking or smoking. I didn't say that. I'm saying like we're real easy to identify that as bad behavior, something that's unacceptable. But we overlook an attitude of a heart which Jesus said is deadly. Just a few thousand rupees. That means it wasn't a big deal. But his fellow servants were bothered. Why couldn't you forgive that? Why, it's not a big deal. Why can't you forgive that? And when the king was informed, he summoned the man. And he called him wicked. And notice this. He reinstated the debt that he previously canceled. So he said earlier, I forgive you, but now he said, no, no, reverse that. You now owe me. 
Come on. Serious, isn't it? Hallelujah. And in the story, in the parable, he delivered the man to the jailers. In the Greek language, the word translated jailers actually means torturers. So it's not just like a place to sit down, you know, behind bars. They're doing physical harm to this person. They may be, you know, mistreating this person. So the basic point is this is a severe warning against unforgiveness. Amen? We should forgive others because God has forgiven us. What you owed God was far greater than anything anybody in this world will ever owe you. Amen? Hallelujah. If we are unwilling to forgive others, cancel their debt, then that will hinder God from blessing us. There are Christians today who are tortured in a sense. Some people are tortured with sickness and disease and they can't receive healing even though everybody's prayed. Some people are tortured with financial lack, debt, financial debt. And they've prayed and they've confessed the word, but unforgiveness is hindering, binding God's hand from blessing them. You should forgive others for your sake. He doesn't deserve to be forgiven, and neither did you. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's, look, let's go on. We've got to wrap this up. Matthew 27 and verse 15. Matthew 27, verse 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. The Greek word translated released, release, is the word apoluo, apoluo. And this same word in other places in the Bible is translated forgive. It's translated forgive. Forgiveness means to deliver a person from prison. To deliver a person from prison. And that reminds us of another verse in John 8, 34 to verse 36. Jesus said this, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Wow. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So much you could say here. One thing that strikes me is sin is deceptive. Sin is not honest. It's not honest. It's lying to you. See, it makes a man think, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Only later to discover he's not the master. He's the prisoner. Hmm? Sin will own you and it will control you. The man who practices sin thinks he is seated in the driver's seat. Eventually, he discovers he's only a hostage. That's especially true concerning like different addictions. You know, whether it's alcohol or drugs, people think, I'm free, I can stop anytime I want to. Of course, they never do. I'm in the driver's seat. They don't realize, no, the alcohol is driving you. Amen. 
So sin is not freedom, it's bondage. And slaves cannot free themselves. By definition, they are someone else's property. A slave cannot set himself free. They need someone else to grant them freedom. You cannot forgive yourself of the sins you have committed against God. You cannot cleanse your own heart. You cannot cancel your own debt. Hallelujah. And since all men are sinners, no other man can do it for you either. Only the Son of God. Only the Son of God can set you free. He came to release the captives. Can I get an amen? amen. Well, let's look at a couple of more verses here tonight. Colossians 1.14. Colossians 1.14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Greek word translated forgiveness in this verse is aphasis. Aphasis. And it means similarly to release. Sin held us hostage, but God released us from its grip. He not only canceled our debt, he set us free from a hostage situation. The word redemption means to buy back a person's freedom. When he forgave you, he set you free. Wonderful. When Jesus went into the synagogue in Nazareth, he read the scripture from the book of Isaiah. We read this in Luke 4, 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And the Greek word translated liberty in this verse is again, aphasis, the same word we read earlier translated forgiveness. Forgiveness is when God gives you liberty. He sets you free. Notice Jesus said he sent me to proclaim this good news, to proclaim liberty. The gospel is an announcement for the poor in spirit, those who are captive to sin, spiritually blind and oppressed, that you are free, that you have been set free from your prison. Hallelujah. Jesus came to deliver mankind from sin and from the effects of sin. Hallelujah. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing. It's a powerful thing. Don't ever let this become commonplace with you. Don't ever minimize this. Don't, don't ever dismiss this. Don't ever, don't ever sort of feel like that, that's, you know, I'm into signs and wonders and miracles. Forgiveness, eh, no, 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 no. We should rejoice over this more than a new car, a new house, you know, a new job or anything, any material possession. This is wonderful. To be forgiven. Don't ever forget you have been set free. So be glad. Sleep well tonight. Your debt has been canceled. <laughs>